Good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to give you a moment to take your seats. Uh, and I must say, we're pleased to see that um, even with concerns about public health, there has been um, a very solid turnout this afternoon. Um, and we're encouraged by uh, your commitment to continue to having discussions like this one, which after all are also very critical to the country's health. So thank you. Uh, welcome again to Public Square. We are delighted to have you here this afternoon. I'm Leonard Wallach, I'm the uh, Executive Director, and here's Dana Wallach, who's the Director of Program and uh, Public Affairs. Public Square holds free community-based seminars that are a model of democratic policy discussion and which also serve as a platform for student civic engagement. Uh, today, uh, we have a student engagement program that currently enrolls 13 undergraduates from UCSB, SBCC, Westmont College, and also CSUCI. They attend our seminars, they meet with community leaders, they receive mentorship opportunities, and nearly all of them go on to apply for our summer civics initiative, which provides students with stipends so that they may volunteer in nonprofit organizations, congressional offices, and social service agencies. Today, we're especially proud of the number of alumna who are now working for local organizations and firms. Maddie Wecht, who graduated from Westmont College, is at the Housing Authority of the City of Santa Barbara. Elliot Limon, who graduated from UCSB in March, uh, is now taking a job at Gitterman, Gitterman, and Feld. And Bree Newport, who also graduated from Westmont, is currently weighing offers from a couple of local nonprofits. So we're delighted that the model we've created of bringing students from the classroom where they're learning about political theory to the community where they're having deliberative democratic conversations to uh, various types of internship opportunities during the summer is resulting in the beginning of actual fellows in our local workforce and future leaders for our community. Their stipends, as well as our free seminars, are made possible through the generous support of private foundations, of corporate sponsors and individual donors, to whom we are extraordinarily grateful. Uh, today's seminar is being underwritten by two dear couple friends of Public Square. They were among those who we consulted at length when we first developed this program. We talked not only about their experience with nonprofits, their experience with internship programs, and they provided us extraordinary intellectual support as well as considerable financial support. So today, underwriting our seminar are Ron and Carol Fox, who are over there, thank you, and Mike and Dale Nissenson, who are right over there. Thank you very much. We hope their generosity of ideas and, uh, of course, financial support will inspire you to visit our website, click the tab that reads Donate Now, and Think of the Future. Public Square's usual format is as follows. 
a distinguished speaker comes to visit with us, talks for about 30 minutes, gives a solution-focused uh, presentation, then leads a conversation that lasts about 45 minutes to an hour, may conclude with a short summary statement, and finally, of course, we have a reception for all of our participants. About 45 to 55 community members uh, from various walks of life are invited each time, many of them with specific interests that relate to our topic. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Richard Hassan, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine, who is one of the nation's leading experts on election law and campaign finance regulation. His latest book, titled Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, was just published by Yale University Press. And here's item A. Not only that, but because of his own generosity uh, and his willingness to accept a very modest stipend, he has enabled us to provide all of you with gift copies of the book as you leave this afternoon. And we have the additional honor of his having actually tried out one of the key articles from this book the first time he spoke here uh, a year ago. So we're indebted to him on a number of scores. He's also the author of three other very influential books, The Voting Wars from, Cal uh, from Florida 2000 to The Next Election Meltdown, Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections, and finally, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia, and the Politics of Disruption. His op-eds and commentaries have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, Slate. And in addition, his widely read election law blog was named by the American Bar Association as its blog 100 Hall of Fame member uh, back in, I think, 2015. Please join me in welcoming him to our seminar on Campaign Misinformation, the First Amendment, and the 2020 election, Richard Hassan. Thank you. Good afternoon. Everybody hear me okay? Good. Um, it's great to be back with you. Um, as Leonard said, I got to workshop part of my book here about a year ago when I was in the middle of writing it. And so uh, the discussion afterwards helped me uh, with that book. And I'm hoping to uh, borrow your minds again, because this is for a new book project uh, that I'm going to talk about uh, that I'll be working on uh, beginning in the fall. Um, let me start with an apology. Uh, I've been sick for the last couple of weeks, uh, so uh, I won't be shaking hands, which is kind of And also, I, I just spoke at Stanford the other day, and I uh, might need a few extra gulps of water. So excuse me if I have trouble speaking a little bit. But uh, I'm mostly over that. Um, so yesterday, uh, I was perusing Twitter. And uh, uh, I saw trending on Twitter the hashtag diaper Dan. Diaper Don, excuse me. Uh, and this was a, a picture, supposedly, of the president uh, at the Centers for Disease Control um, wearing uh, white pants and under it 
apparently a diaper which was leaking. So it was a picture zooming in on uh, his inner thigh showing a, a leak diaper. Uh, almost certainly a completely faked picture, but it had 27,000 you know, uh, shares at the time that I looked at it. The same day yesterday, uh, Joe Biden uh, gave a speech, and he was making a statement like, uh, we're going to elect Donald Trump if we don't get together and get our act together. And uh, Donald Trump shared a altered video of Biden saying, we're going to elect Donald Trump. And as of this afternoon, that video had been shared six million times. And also yesterday, um, I was looking uh, at uh, coronavirus information. And I saw that a tweet that I had uh, seen earlier, purportedly from the American Hospital Association, pr uh, putting out statistics on what was likely to happen, including statistics of 480,000 expected United States deaths, was fabricated. And I was taken in by it um, because it was shared by someone I trusted. And so the topic I'm talking about today is how misinformation can affect our democracy. And in particular, how new forms of information and how uh, new dissemination of misinformation can affect our democracy in ways that are different than what we've seen before. Right? There's always been campaign misinformation. But I think something's different. And I'm going to start by showing a couple of videos to talk about how technology is changing the way by uh, which misinformation can be spread. These are each about two minutes long. By feeding a complicated computer program millions of images and sound bites, it can learn to do this. President Trump is a total and complete different Now, you see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele. It's called a deep fake. We have the facts. Crafting realistic humanoids in video games or CGI movies used to take years of training, hundreds of people, and millions of dollars. But that's just not the case anymore. Today, with just a little facial mapping and powerful artificial intelligence, these sophisticated machine learning techniques are becoming accessible to people who don't necessarily have massive movie-making budgets. Usually, deepfakes are created to make unique videos, like making Nicolas Cage play Lois Lane in Superman or putting Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's body during a Golden Globe speech. I, I just like, it was just, I, this, was, this was very truly surprising for me. But as the technology advances and becomes more believable, worries abound. So that was an example of what I'm going to call a deep fake, which is synthetic video or audio that is manipulated to appear as, uh, as though it's real. Uh, and here's uh, a lower tech version that's come to be known as a cheap fake. Recent videos circulating online have been manipulated to make the congresswoman's words sound sluggish and slurred. This video posted by the Politics Watchdog Facebook page has more than 28,000 shares and 1.2 million views. It shows Pelosi speaking at the Center for American Progress Ideas Conference on May 22nd, but when compared to the Washington Post's verified feed of the same event, it is clear the Facebook video is playing at 75% of the original speed. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic 
for our country. Adjusting the speed like this would make Pelosi's voice sound low and distorted. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. But her pitch has also been altered to sound more like her natural speech. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. It's unclear who doctored the original, but versions of the same video were shared by other users on different platforms, some with captions alleging Pelosi was drunk. This is not the first time video of the speaker has been manipulated to portray her in a negative light. Okay, so uh, I've been studying election law since the mid-1990s, and when I think about the kinds of topics that I used to talk about to groups like this, it would be things like campaign finance reform, or uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, or more recently what I've ca called the voting wars, the fights between the parties over the rules for conducting elections, and that's something uh, I spoke to this group about last year. Uh, but I, if I were ranking my concerns right now uh, in terms of the most pressing issues of elections and election law, at the top of the list would be concerns about misinformation and disinformation uh, coming from both foreign and domestic sources and what we can do about it. And so uh, I want to start by just kind of laying out uh, why I think uh, this is a problem and uh, turn then to potential solutions. Uh, and I'm going to ask you uh, uh, to help me uh, in thinking about those solutions. And so the first thing I would say as we're thinking about these issues is uh, I would define us as living in uh, what I'm going to call a post-truth era. And uh, I have to be careful about this because I'm not claiming that truth doesn't exist. Right? This is a glass. Uh, if I uh, hit it hard enough, it will break. Right? There's, a, there's an empirical reality to things. And, that, and nothing that people say about the state of the world is going to change that. The president can say, for example, that coronavirus is not going to spread, but we will uh, hopefully get accurate information as to how much it actually spreads. Right? A virus doesn't listen to political rhetoric. So I don't mean that there is no longer a reality. What I mean is that there's fundamental disagreements among members of the public regarding basic facts about the state of the world. And no longer a generally accepted arbiter of, uh, among the broad spectrum of the public who can give us what we need. So Jeff Greenfield's not here today. Uh, he would be, in an earlier era, one of these arbiters. I kind of think of it as the, for, for the, the older people in the room, like me, a Walter Cronkite. Someone who you could look to and say, okay, if this person told me this is how it is, I'm going to believe it. And we've lost that. I'm going to talk a little bit about why we've lost that, but let me just give a couple of examples. So um, most Democrats believe that climate change is a real problem, and the more education that someone who identifies as a Democrat has, the more they're likely to believe that climate change is a real problem. You know, uh, highly educated Democrats believe climate change is a problem at very high percentage rates. Among Republicans, you're much less likely to believe that climate change is a real problem. And on the Republican side, this does not differ based on education. So a more highly educated Republican is not more likely, as a more highly educated Democrat, to believe that climate change is real. 
So whether climate change is real or not, what we have is a fundamental division along political lines about the state of the world. Or here's another example. 83% uh, of Democrats say that the Russian government tried to influence the 2016 election. 54% of Republicans said that Russia did not try to influence the election. Or to give a third example, uh, if you ask people um, how likely it is that um, non-citizens uh, in this country without documentation commit crimes compared to um, uh, citizens of the country, uh, Democrats and Republicans both exaggerate or misperceive the extent to which uh, undocumented non-citizens uh, commit crimes. But Republicans are much more likely. And so we're no longer just arguing about facts. Uh, we're, we're no longer just arguing about opinions. We're arguing about facts. And it's very difficult to form public policy and to create uh, an atmosphere where you can solve problems if you don't agree on basic facts. So this is the fundamental problem, is that we live in this post-truth era. And we construct our elections as a way of trying to figure out, uh, sometimes it's direct democracy when we vote on an initiative, but more commonly in this country, we choose representatives who are going to represent our interests. And so that means we depend on the idea that we can figure out which politicians actually represent our interests, vote for them, and they're going to be able to follow public policy that supports our ideas. So uh, that's the idea. And the Supreme Court has written uh, in the context of campaign finance laws about how we need a robust, active, alert citizenry, and we need to have laws that promote that kind of discussion. So why is this a problem? Uh, why is there a problem now? And I would say the problem we have now is uh, what uh, Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA has called the era of cheap speech. Cheap speech. So back in 1995, I think it was, uh, Professor Volokh was at a symposium uh, at Yale Law School talking about what the internet was going to bring. And it was a remarkably prescient article he talked about. He kind of could foresee the rise of Netflix and the rise of um, social media and lots of these different things. He thought this was going to be kind of a First Amendment paradise. We would strip away the intermediaries, like the news media, uh, uh, like public officials, and people would be able to get information directly from one another. Now, um, what he didn't foresee, there were I mean, a few things he got wrong. One of the things he thought was that we'd be printing out our favorite op-ed writers and, and reading them. You know, he, was, he was not exactly picturing the, the smartphone. Um, but one of the things that he didn't foresee, and one of the things that is the uh, biggest problem with the rise of cheap speech, is that cheap speech has changed the economics of journalism. So uh, how does the Los Angeles Times, or how did the Los Angeles Times make money? Classified advertising auto advertising, right? Circulation brings in just a small portion of what newspapers need to run. If you want to find a car today, the last place you're going to turn is to the newspaper. You're going to turn to Craigslist if you're looking for a, a used car. Uh, you might go directly to a website. You might do a search. 
Um, but uh, you're not going to see uh, this information in the newspaper. And so while a few news outlets like the New York Times are doing very well financially, and there was just an article in the New York Times itself by its new media critic, Ben Smith, about how the New York Times is kind of gobbled up lots of money that people might otherwise give to their local papers, local papers are collapsing. I'm not sure what the situation is in Santa Barbara, but um, but uh, you know the you look at you look at medium-sized cities like Cleveland. You know you look at the size. You know lots of these St. Louis. Uh, they're no longer a daily newspaper that's being printed. Okay, so uh, the decimation, and in fact, more journalists lost their jobs than coal miners over the last ten years. And you know the, what's happened to journalism uh, is is a, is, a, is a national problem. And so uh, what ends up happening is that the, uh, with the rise of cheap speech is that the economic market for journalism has collapsed. And so we don't have a good replacement for that yet. And this is especially true on the local level. So you're trying to figure out about a water issue in Santa Barbara, for example. Trying to, you know, different people, developers are saying one thing, environmentalists are saying the other. Who's going to help you know what the truth is? It's very hard now when you don't have people who are paid to try to be truth tellers. And it's even worse because in lots of local areas, especially where the local newspaper started to collapse, you will see partisan organizations, both Republican and Democrat-backed organizations, that create the Santa Barbara Gazette, or some fake website that if you Google Santa Barbara News, it's going to come up, and they're slanted stories mixed in with everything else. And so um, the problem is uh, one of good information being crowded out. So there was a, uh, uh, there's a professor uh, at the University of Chicago named George Akerlof. In 1970, uh, he wrote an article called The Market for Lemons. Um, and for this article, he later won the Nobel Prize. And what he was talking about in this article was the problem with the used car market. And what he said was, um, imagine that you've got a reliable used car. You've had the car for a while, and you're now ready to get a new car. And you decide you want to sell that car. So, well, if you go to sell that car, Let's say you think the car is worth $5,000. Someone who's looking to buy your car, uh, it would be very difficult for that person to know whether your car is a good used car. You know it is. You have this private information. But the other person who's buying it doesn't know. Or they might think it's a lemon. And so the person who might buy your car said, well, if your car was a good used car, I'd pay you $5,000. But because I don't know if it's a good car or a lemon, I'm going to only offer you $4,000 or $3,000. And you think to yourself, well, I don't want to sell my car now because I'm getting less than it's worth. That means that good used cars leave the market, and the market is flooded with more lemons, which means that buyers think, well, I've got to discount more because uh, there's now a greater probability that the car I buy is not going to be a reliable used car, but it's going to be a lemon. So he was talking about a dysfunctional car market. Now, we've solved the problem with the used car market uh, because we have the rise of intermediaries like CarMax that can serve to, they have better information than the average buyer would have, and they can serve as a kind of arbitrageur. We have not solved that problem in the context of information. 
And so, uh, you know, the question is, you know, what do uh, we do about this flood of misinformation? And uh, now, we might ask, why is misinformation a problem? And let me suggest three reasons, uh, the third of which is maybe the least intuitive, uh, but the, maybe the most important. So the first is the most obvious one, that voters might accept misinformation. So the new push now is Joe Biden is suffering from dementia. You're going to be hearing a lot of this over the next few months. And uh, there's no good evidence that this is true. And yet, many people are going to believe this, uh, just like many people believe false things about Hillary Clinton or about Donald Trump in the last election. Right. So if voters, you know, a, a voter who might otherwise choose Biden but decides not to vote for Biden because the voter has received false information, then that voter is not voting in her own interest. So that, that's one problem. Right. A second problem is because of this market for lemons that I've described, it gets even harder for local news media to get their information out because the economics are worse. If you are a, a uh, reader or a viewer and you think so much of what I see on the internet is false, you're going to want to pay less for all information. And so there's going to be even less of a reason to go to the local newspaper. And so if we're in this bad cycle, the rise of misinformation crowds out good information. And now here's the third. I'm going to show you my, this is the third of the three videos. Uh, the third problem. Uh, is what uh, professors uh, Daniel Citron and Bobby Chesney have called the liar's dividend. I'll explain it after this video. Yeah, that's it, with the gold. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the... I can do anything. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret, and the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly, I'm not proud of it, but this is locker room talk. You know, when we have a world where you have ISIS jumping off heads. It says, Trump once said Access Hollywood tape was real. Now he's not sure. And so here's the liar's dividend, that if there's so much misinformation out there, especially if there's misinformation related to uh, uh, altered audio and video, when someone is caught doing something true, they can say, no, that's a lie. So for example, the other day, uh, Trump said, uh, you know, uh, don't, uh, uh, I can't remember, I think he said, uh, uh, the, the virus is, is not going to spread anymore. And then he was on Twitter saying, I never said that. 
Uh, he did the same thing with Lester Holt, where he said that one of the reasons he fired James Comey was because of uh, Russia. And then he said, that's fake news. And so in an era of misinformation, when we see so much misinformation, someone who would like to lie about what the, what the truth is can get away with it more easily. So these are the problems. And so um, let me present you with one of the things I talk about in election meltdown are potential nightmare scenarios uh, that could affect the 2020 election. Let me mention one that's related to this, which I've heard from a number of people who study um, uh, uh, this uh, connection between artificial intelligence and politics. Suppose that it is the night before the election, and an altered video is released on Facebook showing Joe Biden or Donald Trump getting out of a car and stumbling and collapsing. You know, a grainy video made to look like, you know, somebody caught this, and it's totally fake, the night before the election. Now, what are we going to do about that? So let me turn to this question of what can and should be done. And uh, I want to turn to this in the context of the fact that uh, in the United States, we have a very strong tradition of free speech related to elections. Right? The First Amendment of the United States Constitution, it doesn't say very much about free speech. Right? I can tell you the whole thing. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. That's the only part of the First Amendment. That There's also stuff about religion and other things in there, petitioning the government. But that's it. And yet around that, so many things have developed. Uh, the courts have developed all kinds of doctrines about what you can do, what you can't do. You've all heard the famous, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Right? There are limits on what the First Amendment says. And so uh, I want to talk to you for a minute about three different theories of the First Amendment. And then I want to ask each of you to think about this, maybe form uh, small groups and talk for a few minutes about what we can do about this problem of misinformation. So before I send you off to do that, I want to talk about three different theories as to what the First Amendment is supposed to accomplish. Right? The, the Founding Fathers put the First Amendment in the Constitution, but they didn't give us instructions. They didn't give us a, you know, a, a, a why and, uh, for certain provisions. And three main theories have developed as to what the First Amendment is trying to do. One of those theories is the idea of the marketplace of ideas, kind of the corollary to the market for lemons that I've been talking about. Or maybe it's the flip side of that. Uh, the idea is that when you have robust political speech, the truth will rise to the top. Oliver Wendell Holmes is famous uh, for this idea of the marketplace of ideas. The best antidote to false speech is counter-speech. The Supreme Court said that a few years ago in a case involving a guy uh, in, uh, I think it was San Diego County, who lied and said he had won a Presidential Medal of Valor. And that was a crime. That was a federal crime. And the Supreme Court said, you can't have that law uh, because uh, people are, have a right to lie in lots of different contexts. The best solution to this problem, if they're going to lie about something like this, is counter speech. See, people can say he's a liar. And he was running for office, and people could say he was a liar. OK, so one theory is the marketplace of ideas theory. A different theory of the First Amendment is that its primary purpose is to assure uh, free political speech. 
that political speech is more important than artistic speech, is more important than other kinds of speech. And that what, however you decide what the First Amendment allows, the, the, the thing it has to protect more than anything else is the rights of uh, people to um, engage in political activity consistent with their interests. And the third theory of the First Amendment there are others, but the third main theory is an autonomy or self-realization theory, which says that the purpose of the First Amendment really is about assuring that human beings can reach their full potential by being able to express themselves. Now, in this theory, for example, artistic expression is just as important as political expression because it's about what it takes to be a human being. And the purpose of the First Amendment is to assure that we can uh, realize our goals in, in the most holistic way possible. And so the question I want to pose to you, and maybe if you can take, let's say, five, seven minutes, break into groups of three to five people, given what we see with the rise of misinformation and the prevalence of deep fakes, what do you think, consistent with the First Amendment, the government could and should do? So what do you think, consistent with the First Amendment, the government could and should do, if anything, about the rise of misinformation and the potential for these kind of altered videos? So let's take, say, five to seven minutes and discuss that. And then we'll come back. And I want to hear what each of you have to say. Oh, that's OK. It's a little exercise. Okay, let's come back. I'll finish up your discussions. Unruly group. <laughs> All right. So. Sorry to have uh, woken you up from your uh, slumber of listening to me, but I find that it's, uh, it's actually good to get, uh, get people thinking about these things and, and uh, crowdsourcing ideas. So um, does a group want to uh, start by telling us where, where you ended up, if you reached any kind of consensus? Just uh, put a hand up. Yeah. some regulation, then how do you police that? Um, and so um, we were talking about the idea of the same way that you don't report exit polls during voting, that there could be some kind of blackout period where um, an information about Biden falling or Trump falling you know, couldn't uh, be aired. Um, now, for me, as a professor of film and media studies, um, I was thinking about one of the things that media companies don't want is government regulation. They claim that we will self-regulate, just don't regulate, you know. But I do think that we have to be a little bit more active and, and push for regulation because we, we, we see that the self-regulation is not working. And so that's where we are. Yes. Oh, oh we're going to have you use a mic. I, I didn't realize that. Thank you. Uh, it was wonderful to be here with tr true youth and age. 
And we kind of came to somewhat the same place, but along the same lines as yourself. I'm a professor of the history of art. And it seems to me that one of the things that one can do and admit is that audio and visual material can be separated from policy. And that just is a large sort of way to look at the whole thing. And then how do you regulate or how do you sort of provide some kind of truth factor in the audio visuals? We saw the slowdown with Pelosi, we see the face, this, that, another thing. And it seems to me that even though th this problem has been a very recent problem, so it's almost impossible to think as quickly as technology has to be able to complicate our situation, but nonetheless, it seems to me that there, there perhaps could be a consensus along the lines of the FDA or along the lines of the FCC to be able to have a certain kind of body or bank of uh, of information for audiovisual things where the source of that audiovisual material can be verified, i.e., through C SPAN or through uh, ABC or CNN or whatever else, and that that material goes to that particular source, and that then anything that is going to be used from that original source be recognized almost like a, a, a artificial intelligence so that can actually be then from that bank and that government source be able to be designated as such. Thanks. Others? Uh, um, someone, are you passing the mic around? Yes. Great. I see someone over here. We also had the benefit of age and youth, but we came out in the same place. Um, there should be an affirmative obligation of social media platforms like Facebook to maintain um, accuracy to the point of, uh, I believe there could even be a the similar device they used in the early days of television where there were mandatory tape, uh, tape delays, where you had a seven second delay so that if somebody bleeped a word, you could like eliminate it. Uh, it would not hurt Facebook to have a one hour delay if it needed to, but I don't think it would need one hour to find a false ad. I think it could find it probably in a matter of seconds. I think its computers are so powerful, it could easily determine whether something was possibly fake. If so, take it off, look at it more closely. They definitely have the computers to be able to analyze quickly whether there's an accurate or not accurate uh, data compilation, because they can look at the pixelation. And within a very short period of time, they could say, nope, that's not an accurate and it's, and it's interfering with political discourse because it's a lie being told as if it were true. Now, the argument against that historically has been that puts Facebook in the, in the position of being a censor. And the way to solve that, I believe, is very simply like you would do it in any other place, not with judicial review, but with regulatory review. So if you thought your ad was bumped by Facebook improperly, then you should be able to make, have instant access to a regulatory review panel. You could state your case, and within 24 hours, it could be uh, resolved. And I think that would be the way to handle it. So they're not the censor. Ultimately, you have the right of appeal to a regulatory agency that could check various databases or could check the reason why you did it and be very quick to, to respond. We have the technology. We're just not willing to use it yet. And we have to or we're going to lose the republic. Or as Benjamin Franklin said when he came out of you know, Independence Hall, what kind of government have you given us, sir? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. I think controlling social media with this form of regulation is a requirement to keeping the republic. Thank you. Any other thoughts? People, hand over there. Is that over here? Yeah. Either we'll get to everyone. So, so just to uh, follow up on uh, Ronaldo's point, the Facebook now has a, 
uh, established a Supreme Court or a, a court of review uh, for that kind of uh, purpose. So we also, uh, we didn't have any students, I guess, with us. So we have an old, uh, we have old people. <laughs> uh, but we came out with two uh, suggestions. One goes, you know, we didn't want government censorship or corporate censorship uh, as a general matter. Uh, so we went for the literacy approach, which is greater civic literacy and greater digital literacy. There are techniques that you can use more and more to find deep fakes. Um, and secondly, uh, and this is something uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to play with. I would just take a little exception to your statement that uh, you have a right to lie. There is a leeway in the courts uh, for truth so that we don't have chilling effects. And the reason, and, and the standard is uh, that it not be malicious or wanton disregard of the truth. And so what I would say is that you have a presumption of malice if it's doctored video. And you know you can maybe have uh, intermediate scrutiny or whatever you want to get to in terms of su uh, Supreme Court review of First Amendment. But if you had a, if somebody doctors a video there's a presumption of, of malice, which is not, then you're not protected by the First Amendment uh, if it's untrue. Uh, and then you can come back and say, yeah, but this was parody. And you can show that it was parody. But at least it would be a way of kind of moving along uh, and holding accountable the people who actually do the things rather than people who are just transmitting it. There was someone on this side here. Thank you. Well, we had a group therapy moment of outrage over the whole thing, and we're, we were having some trouble getting to concrete actions past that group therapy moment but um, <laughs> I, that I think is shared around the room. <laughs> um, Maureen was particularly voluble, and it was... Uh, anyway, afterwards, if you want to join us, we'll help you. Um, I think the, the difficult issue was your question of government regulation and politics, and just a personal commentary having been exposed to a lot of politics, is in the heat of a campaign, right when you're going to go into voting, it's just a worse situation than what we've always had, which is people throw stuff out and there's only five minutes to vote, and it goes viral for some reason. For me, the Comey, uh, Hillary Clinton emails, for example, had nothing to do with fake anything, but probably if you had one incident that really sunk, sunk her in the very short run, that was it. So I don't think there really is a remedy, unfortunately. I mean, myself, just... Uh, right then. So stepping back, how do we do some of um, maybe higher scale regulating separate from a political campaign because of that instantaneous turnaround in a political campaign? So your idea of uh, some way of dedicating government technology, this was from our student, um, to really spot deep fakes and then at least um, on some kind of a basis where damage has been caused to come up with some punishments or libel or something where you can actually set a standard that if you lie about somebody and it damages them, there are real damages. That, I mean, that this is probably an area of law that needs to be developed because government response after something has occurred and this whole internet faking is a brand new thing. And maybe the other thing was in the area of the electronic mega giants. We're going to have all these antitrust questions. Um, I mean, what are you going to do about Amazon controlling 90% of the books that are distributed in the world in 20 years? What if Jeff Bezos decides one morning we're not going to have any books on fill in the blank? 
I mean, you have this enormous power in the private sector. So where we're going to go with antitrust, um, I mean, this, this control, this whole area of how are you going to regulate the Internet. So anyway, those were two areas we touched on. Okay. Someone in the back here. I have a question. You mentioned Danielle Citrone. Yes. And I know her. And from my understanding, has she developed a body of case law that's being applied to the Internet? Well, right now she is suggesting changes to um, federal statutes so, that she thinks So could she help. is using Congress as the basis. Okay. That's what she's trying to do. As yeah. opposed to having a series of, I mean, she started this 20 years ago, like in the early 90s. And um, it, it, so there is no um, series of case law that has been established. Well, there is some case law. She's working mostly on the regulatory side gotcha. as opposed to on the constitutional side. I, I'm going to come back to both of those okay. things. But I do want to give anyone else who wanted to have a chance over here. Just very briefly, uh, we agreed with many of the points already made. I won't reiterate them. The one, and, and specifically with changing the uh, Communications Decency Act uh, to take out the section that provides immunity for platforms, social media platforms. That, that's the work that Danielle Citron right. is working on. This right. is Section 230 of the 230, exactly. I, I wanted to add, though, in that regard, um, uh, there's the old-fashioned notion of defamation. And I realize that the Sullivan case in the 60s limited that somewhat for certain classes of people. I think it is still the case that if I wantonly damage another person or entity, uh, there can be damages for that. Now, some of the information we're talking about, deepfakes, might not have a damaged party, but the, the, the basis, I think, which might not solve a last-minute political ad, but rather our culture, might be to make people truly be in jeopardy of being put out of business if they engage in defamation. Anyone else want to? Speak? No? Okay. Actually, oh, yes, yes I, I think I would. Because what's rolling around in my mind is, um, is the idea of, of um, uh, the Internet and media going dark 24 hours before the election so that no one has the vehicle to uh, transmit. You can put a lot of regulation out there, but if someone is intent on doing it, the damage is done. And so then you're prosecuting on the backside. Right. So let me react to some of these things and tell you where I've landed at this point, and then we can open it up to further discussion. Um, first, uh, just some facts. Uh, right now, uh, computer scientists do not believe that they have the technology to be able to detect cheap fakes in real time. Cheap, not deep. But deep, deep they, are not, they, they can detect deep, cheap fakes, yes but they cannot detect deep fakes in real time. And so we may get to a point where there is some kind of technological solution uh, to this. Um, but um, we're not there yet. Um, and then in terms of the case law, in terms of what the Supreme Court has said, there are instances in which people can be punished for lying. For example, the court has said that perjury doesn't violate, a prosecution for perjury doesn't violate the First Amendment. A prosecution for fraud, where someone is defrauded out of their money, that, even though that's done with speech, that doesn't violate the First Amendment. But in the context of political speech 
and lying in campaigns. The closest case is this case I mentioned earlier. It's called United States versus Alvarez, which is about the guy who lied about having won this medal. And on the court there, the message from seven of the justices was counter speech is the only solution. Because when you get the government into the business of deciding what's true or false in a campaign, that itself could be, a, 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 if we're going to quote Benjamin Franklin, a cure worse than the disease. So this is the concern. So when I hear, for example, we'll hand it to a regulatory body, I say, OK, that regulatory body is going to be an administrative agency of the executive branch. That means the president can decide who decides what's fake news. right? So it becomes a, you know, do you trust the government? And uh, one, uh, in, in many countries, there are blackouts on certain kind of news media uh, before an election. In the United States, I'm very confident that that law would be found to be unconstitutional, and not even on a 5 to 4 vote, maybe even on a 9 to 0 vote, because we have this very strong thumb on the scale towards free speech. Um, the question is whether that changes now, whether it should change now. Um, but if you're asking me about current Supreme Court doctrine, ideas of having a blackout period or ideas of saying you have to wait 24 hours before you can post something, I think those things would not, would not be considered constitutional. So then there's the idea of self-regulation. Now, self-regulation is, the Supreme Court said actually last year, Facebook and groups like Facebook are not government actors. They're not subject to the First Amendment. If Facebook decided tomorrow, we're taking down Joe Biden, or taking down Donald Trump, they have perfect constitutional right to do that. that. That does not violate. There's no Fairness Act or anything that had applied to broadcasters years ago. They're private actors. So that, that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, that means um, you, know, you, can't, uh, uh, you, you can't sue them in court if they're not fair. Right? But on the other hand, it means that we could try to pressure them to try to do the right thing. But then this raises the issue of antitrust. If you've only got Facebook, Twitter, and Google through YouTube controlling most social media, right? Facebook owns Instagram, Facebook owns WhatsApp, and we're expecting a lot of these false messages now are going to be spread through encrypted private messages, not things that people could even see. Right? Do we expect the companies are going to do better? And Facebook, Twitter, and Google have done different approaches. Twitter says they're not going to take political ads this year. But of course, a fake video that someone posts of Biden collapsing, that's not a political ad. So that's not regulated by Twitter. Um, Facebook is disclosing those who uh, pay for political ads. And then you get into the question of, well, how do you define a political ad? Is an ad about climate change that doesn't mention a candidate, is that a political ad? Uh, and Facebook has a kind of a very bad um, track record of actually requiring disclosure. So uh, you could be a Russian oligarch, and you could form a company, an LLC in the United States, and that LLC could buy something, and there's no way you'd ever get to know that that was illegal. So Congress could fix that particular problem. And I'm a big believer in improved disclosure laws. Um, but for the, for the immediacy, for that last minute hit piece, as somebody mentioned, 
it's very hard to know uh, what the solution is. And punishment after the fact, while it might be constitutionally permissible in some circumstances, at least for defamatory speech, what's that going to mean for the candidate who is now out of office because she was the victim of Pizzagate or, uh, or, or whatever? So um, where are we now? And then I, I want to really open it up to your comments and questions. California has passed a law that bans the, um, the uh, dissemination of a deep fake, which is defined uh, in the statute, about a political figure in the period before the election, unless it's satire or parody, which someone mentioned. I find this completely unworkable. Who is going to decide that something is satire or parody? So my alternative to this would be anytime you engage in the alteration of a video that doesn't follow normal editing techniques, for example, like simply shortening the video. Anytime you alter a video, whether it's a parody or not, the video should be labeled as altered. So label it, and so that would not really detract much from the parody to have on the corner that it's altered. That would be uh, uh, one uh, way uh, to try to deal with things. I also think that uh, nothing stops the government from engaging in its own truth-declaring function. So someone mentioned we could have a body that could pre-approve things. I think that pre-approval is probably a violation of the First Amendment. But the government can have a, like a Federal Trade Commission type agency that says, we've examined the video and it is, has been altered, or something like that. Um, but when you think about what social media companies face, literally billions of posts a day. And they don't know which one is going to take off. Uh, you know, th so they've got teams around the world. Facebook has you know, not only its Supreme Court, it's got just a, uh, an army of people dealing with this. They have an army of people just taking down hateful uh, and, and um, uh, uh, objectionable kinds of content as well. Um, not everything is going to be caught. And so uh, ultimately, I think, beyond truth and labeling and the government engaging in truth functions and better campaign disclosure, the solution I come to, it's kind of unsatisfying, but it's what someone said, which is greater civics uh, education and literacy. Because um, people have to be trained. And so in this way, I'm kind of um, both relieved and alarmed at what I'm seeing among younger people. Younger people, according to surveys, are much more likely to not be taken in by misinformation online. So that's the good news. They're more likely to not be taken in. The bad news is it's because of this problem, this market for lemons problem. They tend to believe everything is false. And so what are going to be the sources of legitimate uh, information? And that's why the final thing I would add to the litany of of suggested uh, things to do is subsidies for local investigative journalism. Because uh, what, what we're missing are those trusted arbiters. And the market's not working. But just like the market doesn't necessarily work to provide us with safe streets and roads, we have taxes for that. And we, you know, we have a mechanism for that. I think we need a mechanism. News is kind of like a public good. And so 
I hate to say that we're relying on the Michael Bloombergs of the world to pay for it, but that's what's happening now, is that it is the generosity of very wealthy people. If you ever look at ProPublica, uh, a nonprofit news site that does investigative journalism, we need more of this. Um, and so the hope is to reinvigorate the market for truthful intermediaries to be able to get us to a point where we are uh, able to make uh, political decisions consistent with our own interests and consistent with truthful information. So, well, on that note, let's begin by making sure this is on. <laughs> is it? Great. Let's begin by thanking Rick Hassan for a very interesting, <laughs> a very interesting presentation that is extraordinarily thought-provoking. And I must say, as I listened, I found myself deeply, deeply fascinated by how this is going to come out. Uh, because at the end of the road, of course, is a story of how our democracy either thrives or fails. That is ultimately what's at stake. Um, as we start with the q and I do want to ask uh, a couple of things. One, when you request the mic, please make sure to speak into it. We do record these events so that we can podcast them, and we want to capture all of your voices. Also, um, make sure to quickly return it um, so that it can be circulated to others. And then finally, I'm going to make an unusual request, which is I'm curious to know from the students here whether or not they feel as though Rick's characterization of them um, as 20-somethings and their own views of the internet and the legitimacy of information they obtain that way um, is indeed accurate. And your own take on what you see as the problem and the solution. I'm just curious. One of you I know has already spoken in her group. Um, and uh, so Mercedes, we appreciate the comments you made earlier through your group. But I'd like to hear from others uh, as well. And so let's begin with a few of the students, if we could. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Takers? Nathan. Yeah. Uh, so, regarding uh, Facebook regulating the truth, um, I wrote this down, but I said, I don't think this will work because Facebook's goal is not to be the objective truth, like you said, uh, but they're about the subjective truth in the eyes of the user. So, basically, what I've learned in the past is that um, kind of like social media, like Facebook, Instagram, like their job is not to like help us see that objective truth, but just for us to have as much screen time as possible using the app. Um, I mean, that's what they want. Like they want to be a popular app and like want to grow more um, like users in general. Uh, like I'm sure that's how they make money, right? So. Yeah, I should just, I'll interject. I forgot to say 85% of uh, money for advertising related to uh, news media content goes to Facebook and Google rather than to the newspapers. Yeah, so I guess like um, in terms of the app, like it's basically displaying what we want to see. It's like like they're never going to show objective truth if that's not what we want to see. And what goes on in our feeds, uh, whether it be like 
deep fakes or anything else. Like, it's really up to us, um, not up to these social media uh, groups. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, well, um, that puts a big burden on users. And, uh, you know, most people, I mean, you're not a, you're, you're an unusual group in that you're um, very politically interested. Most people are busy r dealing with their lives, and politics is just a side thing that they turn to occasionally. And so uh, it, it may be incumbent on all of us to ferret out misinformation and figure out what's really going on, but busy people don't always do that. And so, uh, you know, the question is uh, how we can create incentives for people to do that, whether that's through civics education or through um, antitrust law to try to force the companies to act more in the public interest. First of all, thank you very much for coming. Uh, to run with your closing statements. A little louder. A little closer to the mic. There we go. <laughs> uh, I agree. I think education is as of most issues, the core here. But I'm curious what you'd think about a very millennial idea, which would be more of a crowdsource verification process that is associated with a regulatory agency, where individuals could red flag sources that were obviously fake, and a certain amount of flaggings might lead to a review. And then sources that were accredited would build that reputable source tagline, um, a yeah. way of sharing the burden amongst so there more is, educated yes, individuals. There is know. some of that already in that uh, you can report false information to Facebook. And uh, if, for example, you try to share uh, a, a post that a fact-checking organization has flagged as false, you will now get a notification that you have done it. So that's kind of like this crowdsourcing idea. Part of the problem with this is that now the fact-checking organizations themselves are being attacked as part of some kind of conspiracy to suppress information. Um, but I do think that, that you know, certainly crowdsourcing can work. So I mean, just imagine what it would be like, the Biden video of him collapsing post the night before the election. Immediately, people are going to get to work, and they're going to um, try to show that this is false. Right, it's going to be happening at the last minute. And there are going to be people who are going to be sharing it and claiming that it's true. So one of the problems is for the last minute hit, in real time, that's not going to be useful. It's useful for Hillary Clinton is not running a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor. That was not a last minute hit. But there are still millions of people who actually believe that. Um, so I, think that's part, part, I do think that's part of the solution. I just don't know that it's enough. Yes. Oh. Sorry. Call on everyone as you wish. Oh, okay. I thought you were calling on people. Okay. Um, so I guess this is stemming from the way that I see media. This question that I have is just because, um, obviously, I try not to get any of my news sources from Facebook. I rarely use it because I think that's like you were saying. It has a bad rep. Um, so, like in my personal life, I do do research that's like obviously with the new sources that I trust first, but then um, I've been taught to go out and do like a little bit more and see what possibly like other people who don't have the same views as I um, are saying about the same topic. And um, I agree. I think a lot of the issues we run into is that the issue with like convenience and 
Um, people don't have time to do stuff like that in the way that I do because I'm a political science student that like has to do this research. So I think that's, like you were saying, it's pretty challenging for like the normal people who have jobs and other lives to do the same thing. Um, but also the issue, or like the fact that there are organizations like ProPublica that do have um, media that isn't as biased, you could say, as other institutions. So like my question would be like in the future, if we move as a society to come to accept these types of institutions rather than like sources that we've known such as like the New York Times and CNN that have been around, um, do you think there will be worse implications if we were to do that? Or do you think this is just like a natural segue that we should be doing and like promoting s institutions like ProPublica? Well, I, I think the New York Times and CNN are, are doing good work, it's just, the problem is the more local you get, the more of a problem there is. So there are thousands of journalists that go to cover the presidential, literally thousands, that go to cover the presidential debate. But yet, when I went to vote in Los Angeles, you know, there's 20 races on there, and most of them got no coverage. You know, we have a big um, dispute over our district attorney. That's a problem in a lot of... Um, American cities, where there's you know, fights about law and order versus a reformist, uh, you know, different uh, views on criminal justice. That gets, doesn't get adequate coverage. And so people walk into the polling place, they know if they want you know, Bernie or somebody else, but there's all this other stuff out there. And um, part of the problem with all of this national coverage is that we've nationalized our elections. And so we see everything through a national partisan lens. So when I say that we need more ProPublica, I mean we need more of it on the local level. We need to know what's happening in California. I mean, California is, what, the fifth largest economy in the country. I think there's not a single Los Angeles world, excuse me, there's not a single um, Los Angeles television station that has a bureau in Sacramento. You know, we, we don't, you know, the LA Times coverage is, is you know, not so great. Uh, because, and they're, they're probably the, by far the biggest in Southern California covering what's happening in the state. So that's really, I think, where a lot of the problem is. Yes. Um, yes, I, just a couple of things that I wanted to uh, comment on. Um, one of the things that I think is, is really a problem for us is this idea of you know, confirmation bias, where we seek news that confirms where we already are in terms of what we believe. So that oftentimes, as you, know, you had pointed out, one of the, the students had pointed out that uh, it's not so much that Facebook is going to give us the truth as much as it wants to keep us, it wants to be sticky, it wants to keep us on that platform or within their universe. Um, and so, you know, they really, they don't care about that. It's just the, the whole clickbait thing. Um, and so I think one of the things we have to think about, however, is that um, the issue of credibility and how do we deal with the October surprise that everybody knows is going to happen in every election. There's going to be some, something that's intended to derail a campaign. And whether it's going to be true or not is something that we, you know, need to think about in terms of, you know, credibility and how do we assess credibility. I like that idea of the crowdsourcing and some of the ways that we're doing that. Um, and I think that one of the things that happens too is we send information out from our friends because we, we view that as credible. But you have to also 
um, you know, let them know, like, oh, that was two years ago. And, you know, did you check this with something else? And so once people get shamed enough, then they start to, like, not automatically reposting. And so there is a way in which that heavy responsibility on us as users, and so we let the company off the hook, has to be addressed because we do have to take responsibility. My final, po my final point is that when we think about whether something is constitutional, I did raise the issue of the blackout period. We have to realize that we're in a crisis right now, and our three our three branches of government are not working. And so, you know, we have to think about the way in which, for example, um, Germany had made uh, Facebook and other social media not post um, anti-hate and you know anti-Semitic. Um, um, information. Now, they don't have the same constitution that we have, but we need to look at how do we reform ours. It's supposed to be a living document. So when it comes to something as important as our democracy, I think we need to rethink some of these ideas. Yes, I actually have a, I don't know if it'll come up here, a little picture. This was me describing the Supreme Court justices. Uh, silo, oh, that picture's gone. Uh, I guess it's gone. Uh, it was a picture of, it's gone. Uh, silos. Um, uh, it's not just the average person that's getting information that confirms what they believe, right? So Justice Scalia, who I wrote a book about a few years ago, he said, you know, he didn't read the Washington Post or the New York Times. He found them too shrilly liberal. He got his information from talk radio. Um, so, you know, you've got your Fox News justices and you've got your MSNBC justices. And we're all victims of our own siloing, where we, we follow people we agree with. We get more egging on. Uh, and there was a great piece in Vox um, last week about uh, why doesn't everyone love Elizabeth Warren? Everyone I know loves Elizabeth Warren. That was the piece. And it was, well, you're a white, affluent person living in a city. You're not most of America. You're 12% of America. But yet you think everybody must think like you. Um, and so I, I think this siloing is a huge problem. Um, in terms of what the, you know, what, the, what the First Amendment should look like, uh, I will just say what the First Amendment is likely to look like is it's likely to be a tool for further deregulation and for uh, allowing the powerful to become more powerful, at least in the hands of this current Supreme Court. And Justice Kagan, in one of her dis <coughs> dissents in a recent case involving uh, union dues of public sector unions, a case called Janus, she said that the conservatives on the court had weaponized the First Amendment. And so I think things are moving exactly the opposite direction from what you're describing. Whether, whether it's good or bad, it's just empirically, I think that's not what's going to happen. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that what you just said about there's MSNBC judges and Fox judges is categorically false. Okay, so I want to start with that because Fox is clearly a propaganda arm of a particular political movement. Let's be clear. And intended to be. Formed for that purpose by a Republican operative for that specific purpose successfully. MSNBC, for the most part, I find, not with every single person on it, but for the most part, I find far more in accurate. And I read almost everything. People who know me know I read voluminously everything from the New York Times, the Financial Times of London, Daily, okay, I really keep up on things. And so I track against accuracy. And it is not a fair statement. It is an invidious comparison, actually, to say that MSNBC judges, that's just bullshit. People who are scholars, which I believe you are, 
if not in con law, specifically in constitutional law, scholars understand the principle of stare decisis. We understand the principles of how a court functions, and this particular court has gone non-functional. We also now have 100, what, 185 judges who've been appointed, a third of whom never passed the American Bar Association test for competency, who've been appointed to lifetime appointments to the federal bar, federal judiciary. So I think it's time for us to be much more clear about what's happening here. Our country is under attack by a particular ideology. And if some of us are trying to find out what the truth is through that, not that you can't possibly find the truth in almost every place, but the last place I would look for truth is Pravda. So I, I think we need to really be much more clear about this. This is not something as, as simple as, gee, in a perfect world, and I agree with what you said a minute ago, we're in a crisis. Anybody who doesn't understand that doesn't realize what's coming next. And so I would urge you to, to, to rethink. And by the way, I also just one of the things you said. You said we do not have the technology today to be able to screen within a reasonable amount of time whether someone's pixelated a deep fake. That's not true. I actually am a technology guy, and I can tell you for a fact it's available. So I'm not sure where you're getting your information, but I think if you combine it that way, it's not a fair conversation. That's all. Well, I have a number of responses, but I'll, I'll keep them limited. Uh, first, uh, uh, I have an article called um, Deep Fakes, Bots, and Siloed Justices. If you Google that, you'll find it uh, posted on uh, ssrn.com. I should tell you, so that's one article, and the other one is called Cheap Speech and What It Has Done for American Democracy. Both of them are freely available on ssrn.com, and in that article you will find citations to the scientific literature, in the, in the deepfakes article, on what, what scientists are saying about this point. On the question of MSNBC, I can tell you that people who watch MSNBC believe that the Russia investigation is you know, one of the most important issues of our time in the United States. Whether Rachel Maddow is presenting true information or false information, she's setting an agenda. Uh, and I believe MSNBC, at least in its opinion programs, sets an agenda. Whether it's not engaged in truth-telling to the same extent as Fox, I, I, I think I agree with you on that. But it's still giving people a different set of information, a different set of priorities. So I think I have a fundamentally different view. And finally, on the ABA, the ABA has been attacked as being politically biased. There, again, we have a problem with intermediaries. Uh, it turns out, there's a, a new book by... Um, Adam Bonica of Stanford and Maya Sen of Harvard studying lawyers. Lawyers turn out to be overwhelmingly liberal. And the American Bar Association takes very liberal positions on things. And so uh, when the ABA says that someone is not qualified, sometimes uh, that has been found by conservatives to be a political. They, uh, sure. The, I can, there is an example of, uh, I'm forgetting his name, a justice who was the, um, a, a judge who was uh, just appointed to the Ninth Circuit, who was the Nevada and, the, and earlier Montana Solicitor General. I'm forgetting his name, but you can uh, Google it and find it. I'm not saying that the ABA is necessarily biased. What I'm saying is that uh, even the ABA is not viewed as a neutral arbiter. We, that, this is what I mean by a post-truth era. Okay. Well, I, I would point you to this to, to, to this book, and uh, and there's a study that. Uh, yeah. Um, 
it, it seems to me we're kind of struggling with the MSNBC Fox as one layer of this conversation. And then another is what has the internet actually done to truth? I mean, or, uh, as a general matter. And um, just as a side commentary, my own background was um, in political something called political anthropology, which looks at the politics of tribes. And nothing's very new. Everything's still a tribe. And I do just like on the MSNBC versus Fox uh, commentary, it is clear we have two different cultures going on. Now, in my opinion, I happen to belong to the urban I believe in science culture. And I happen to look at what Fox News is doing as the modern form of book burning, which is very common in true believer movements and mass movements. That having been said, I don't think we can blame the internet for the current level of misinformation. Because if we look at Hitler, I mean, there was seven years of the Aryan race. If you take any period in history, political powers always using ideas and information and trying to channel it one way or the other to support their political agenda. I happen to support MSNBC. I happen to support, I think you should have science, you should have multiple sources, and so on. But if you're in this other authoritarian world, to me, you actually believe the most important thing is loyalty. And if you don't see loyalty from someone, then you throw it overboard. I don't like it. I don't want to live under it. And we are now in a 50-50 setting. OK, so with that having been said, it seems to me there's a very small group of people that are actually up to be influenced from what everyone has said. Because the Trump voters, when you read the material in the paper, say he's a schmuck and he lies, but they don't care because he's fighting for them. I happen to not understand what they're fighting for because I'm not of that mindset. But that seems to be that information isn't an issue in that culture, which is, I think, to your point, that for this other group, the, the truth isn't the issue. It's the loyalty or the, the values. Um, that having been said, what, you're, what you've really hit on that is very, I think, disturbing if you're from the MSNBC culture, which I am from, and that is we're losing curated information. In other words, when you lose all those paid journalists, you don't have people who are paid to go out and find the truth, which is at least within my value system of what the truth is. Now, you have said that the New York Times is robust. And we're so new into the information age. I know there are blogs that are growing at a great rate as if they are magazines. And maybe this is a question for the kids, because this is really going to be your world and not ours. Is the internet itself starting to generate anywhere, or can that be facilitated, various curatorial sites that are, are well curated according to, say, my values, which would be more like the New York Times? Is that in and of itself coming out of the internet, not just taking the name New York Times, which used to be a paper, and slapping it on a site? How is the internet responding to the demand for truth, combined with the fact we're getting a lot more sophisticated about the fact we're being lied to? So what I'm looking for all the time is, where can I go to a curated site? You know, I tr quote, trust the New York Times. Or I've even gotten tired, forgive me, of MSNBC. I don't want to hear about Trump. I'm starting to listen to the BBC. Or you know, I go to PBS. Or I'll you know, try to find the French news if it has subtitles, just so I don't have to listen to American, you know, these two cultures screaming at one another. So how is the internet evolving? And or do you see, or could we facilitate um, Getting a reputation, I mean, I, I read the Times because it has a reputation of curating information. And just to, to close, I read the other day that 50,000 books are published a month in the world right now. I mean, at that level of information, you have to go to somebody who's an editor or a curator, somebody who is distilling, your, you have trust in. 
So I guess I'm just kicking it back. Where do you see or how do you see us developing the internet itself to give us some way of paying? What, what could be a business model that would pay good reporters and create a well-curated site that we would you know, have confidence in or a half a dozen we could go to? Sure, well, I mean, I think those sites already exist. Let, let, let me back up and say misinformation's not new. Right. Certainly well comes, you, know, you, don't, you don't need to go to Hitler, you can go much earlier. Um, what's happening now, why I think we're uniquely in trouble, is because we're having a technological revolution in information at the same time that we're deeply polarized. So if the internet would have hit in the 1950s, when the American Political Science Association released a report saying that the two parties need to make themselves more different from each other because they were exactly the same. I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, really, it, toward a more responsible two-party system, 1952 report. Um, so what's happening now is that, yeah, there are curated sites. You can go to townhall.com and get all of your conservative misinformation at the site, and people will trust it. That's the problem, is that even curated sites have a point of view. And I don't mean to present the fight over truth as symmetrical. You know, I believe in, uh, that climate change is a real problem. So that puts me in, you know, on the side of where the Democrats are, but... No, well, that's not quite, that's not quite true. Okay, so, excuse me, could we sort of continue to recognize each speaker and use the mics, please? Thank you. Yeah, yes. I just wanted to share that I had a public relations and marketing firm for 35 years, and I watched the change in the media. So this did not just happen overnight. I'll just tell you one quick story. I actually had the pleasure of representing Meredith Brokaw for seven years. She wrote a series of children's books and she had four toy stores in New York. We were doing a book promotion and we arrived at an NBC Boston site to do her book. And there was a spread of toys and it was supposed to be the best toys pick for Christmas. And she said, who picked these toys? And the producer said, oh, Toys R Us has paid for this segment. And she was like, what? Are you going to inform the viewers that this has been a paid segment? And he didn't understand why this was a big deal. So I share this story with you only because Corporate money has been coming in. There has been a big, we used to have what were called roundups where editors would pick products. And then what happened was they did not say that they were being paid by those companies. And then they became what we now know as advertorials. Because there was pressure put on them by the average consumer because they began to understand what the issues were. So it goes back to what you were saying. The more education we have 
the better we will be able to go through this market. And even somebody like me who gets these texts and I begin to, oh, one just came the other day that said, Amazon wants to follow up on your delivery. And I thought, I haven't ordered anything from Amazon recently. And then I was able to just push to see that it wasn't coming from Amazon. So I'm just getting smarter. So I just would like to reiterate, it comes back to the more informed we are, the better education we have, the better we can understand what we're being presented. It's still a challenge, it's still a battle, but I saw this begin more than 40 years ago now. So thank you very much, by the way, for sharing all of this. Oh, it's been enlightening. Thank you. I, I think one concern I have is when you're talking about manipulated audio and video, it may be different in terms of how our brains process the information than when it's, you know, you're reading something in a, in a, a news article. Um, there are social scientists who are studying this, but the idea is that when you're left, when you see an image, even if you are later told the image is false, it stays with you. And so I am concerned that the rise of falsified video and audio is going to make it harder for us to be the, that educated consumer. Right, but one thing I just want to say is, you know, we used to have like the, the good housekeeping seal of approval. Yes. You know, you knew then, in theory, it was for real. Those, I was just saying, we, there were ways that you began to know, like good yes. housekeeping. Right. So I, I do think that the more we can um, have something that being said, one last thing. I used to have a client, a pair of like-minded clients that would take me to meetings. And the reason was that they would walk out of meetings each hearing something different. Right. We, you need trusted intermediaries. And that, the question is how you build or rebuild the, the, these intermediaries that, we, that we're lacking right now. Uh, do we have time or are we? Yeah. A couple more questions. As we're winding down, I wonder if maybe we could look for some sources of optimism. Uh, we That'll be over in the other room. Okay. <laughs> you, you think spirits would do it. The, uh, no, my thought is there are about three things that I think have some potential that we've discounted a bit. One of them is the whole power of supercomputers, artificial intelligence, and data, and deep data. Uh, if we can use that so effectively in looking what book I'm going to order next. It seems to me we could use the same technology to, uh, to try to <clears throat> help assess some of these thorny issues or to provide a technological intermediary that can over time begin to develop and win trust. I was struck by Michael Lewis's uh, book about how the Department of Agriculture has changed the way that we see weather forecasting, made it much more reliable and help farmers be much more efficient. At the same time, uh, lots of people have made money using the data that's, uh, that's generated through uh, the research that's going on. So it seems to me those kinds of things fact check to cubed level could help speed up the process of assessing uh, comments that don't bear the thrust of light. Uh, do you see some positive 
opportunities or areas that we can look for for intermediation? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? The, the, the technology can be used to create the deep fakes. The technology can also be used to detect the deep fakes. And right now, we're just kind of catching up to try to uh, be able to ferret it out. But ultimately, I think we're, th this is not something we're going to technologically solve. I think it's going to require um, investments in intermediaries, which uh, I don't think can become. I don't think it can come from the government. Um, we, you know, uh, we have PBS. PBS remains one of the most trusted sources of news, and NPR, and yet there are significant members of the public that do not accept right. that. Right. And so the question is, you know, how do you build more of that trust? Uh, and so I think educating journalists to not make stupid mistakes right. is a big is a big part of it. And, uh, and a big part of my book, uh, Election Meltdown, is. Uh, how journalism has helped to contribute to the sense of lack of confidence in the fairness of the election process because of all the sensationalizing and what has to be done for clicks on CNN and these other places. So I think it, I don't think it's a technological fix. I think it's going to be more of a commitment to um, building up reliable intermediaries that are responsible. We have one last question. Yes, right there. Um, is that, was that Meryl? Um, as you have not had a chance to speak yet. Yes. So I was going to go back to another point you'd made. You'd said we need civics education. Well, with this great divide, wouldn't the civics education be provided by the two respective camps, by the two respective cultures? What, how would that move the needle forward? And similarly with ProPublica, Pro which um, my husband and I wholeheartedly support with our dollars, Again, who, and it's you know, amazing exposés that they produce, but who is reading it? Does that move the needle? We are reading it, but does that move the, the needle forward in terms of resolving this great divide between the two camps and cultures? Well, I think that there can be civics education about constitutional values and about the importance of being literate, <laughs> being politically literate in ways that are not necessarily partisan. And I think you know, a good example here is um, a field that I know from my last book and I've been studying, election administration. So how do you count the votes and how does all of that work? And at the level of secretaries of state and at the level of the national government, it's highly polarized and highly contested. But when you talk to election administrators for the most part who are working in the county level, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. They're trying to do a good job. They don't want to be embarrassed by having a miscount. And they're actually professional organizations that work together. Um, another example is the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. They have a series of videos online, a series of written materials presenting different views on the Constitution. Where do people agree? What are the disagreements? So there, there, there is material out there. And it may, we may need to have a crisis and move beyond that crisis to get back to a place where people are willing to be more open-minded. It's, it's very hard when we're in the middle of, a, uh, of, of war to see what's happening. Uh, but I think we need to keep trying at these things in the hopes that there will be this moment when um, there can be common ground that can help to educate people on uh, what they need to know to be literate citizens in a 21st century democracy. On that note. Let's thank again our speaker.
Thank you. And we at Public Square would also like to thank all of you because today, the participation that we witnessed, the struggle to find common ground, to define issues that are extremely difficult and, of course, inflame passions, all that is part and parcel of the messiness of democracy. And it's the thing, of course, that traditionally has made our culture, our political culture, so vibrant and so effective. So thank you all for coming today, contributing your wisdom, your thoughts, your idealism, and your skepticism. And we look forward to seeing you at the reception afterwards where you may please pick up and take with you a copy of Richard's new book. Thank you.